Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on Asia, China, and the Pacific. Uh, I'm John Yu, one of your guest hosts, one of your hosts, actually. I wish I was a guest host. And we're joined today by both host and guest playing a twofer role, Misha Oslin. Misha, say hello. Introduce yourself to everybody. Hello. I'm Misha Oslin. I'm the co-host and a guest today, fellow at the Hoover Institution, along with John, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. And we are here to talk about Misha's new book, Asia's New Geopolitics, Essays on Reshaping the Indo-Pacific, with a foreword by Neil Ferguson, also another fellow at the Hoover Institution. And uh, let's just get right into it. I, I, first of all, I, I think it's a great book, and I hope uh, people take the chance to look at it. Uh, to me, the thing I loved the most about it was that it was um, like a combination of history, policy, uh, strategy. Uh, and it wasn't just about China. It was about Japan and India. Uh, but uh, the first thing I'd like to talk about is the thing that I really came away with, uh, which was thinking about Asia in a very different way than you see it talked about by uh, a lot of other writers today. Misha argues that we should think of the Pacific Ocean uh, in a way that the Europeans and the ancients thought about the Mediterranean Sea as this body of water in the middle or surrounded by land. Uh, so, Misha, Tell us, where did you come up with this idea? Uh, Tell us about these people. I think that a lot of uh, listeners would not know Mackinder, for example, uh, Spayman. Is it Spayman? Spikeman. Uh, Spikeman. Oh, yeah, Spikeman. People like that and how it influences your thinking about Asia today. And, of course, congratulations on the new book. But let's get right into it. Tell us about this idea of the Pacific Ocean being like the Mediterranean. It's a great concept. Thank you, uh, John. I mean, the the book was – first, it's a series of essays. Um, It's not uh, sort of an overarching uh, one narrative uh, theme. Uh, And they were essays written at different times. And I really enjoyed that because you can you can you know make it make of an essay an entire world as opposed to uh, have to have a chapter that's just part of of a larger whole. So I, I thought the essay form, which you know in large ways has been superseded by um, blogging and tweeting and the fact that people don't write eight thousand or ten thousand word essays anymore, was an experiment. And so uh, the the overarching idea that I wanted to try to bring back uh, without doing a formal exploration of it was the concept of geopolitics, um, which we used to think about all the time in the Cold War. Um, The names that you mentioned, people like Halford McKinder and Nicholas Spikeman, uh, used to be on the, you know, they were on the lips of anyone who was talking about international relations because they stressed the importance of geography as a factor, either how geography impacted the the, uh, relations between states or how foreign policy had to be um, executed, in essence, in, in a geographic realm, in a geographic space think about that so let me pause you Misha. so what does that mean that geography influence you know in this world today we think of geography does geography matter isn't the world flat according you know there's a freeman tom freeman put it in his well-known book the technology is reduced distance 
Uh, the internet communica communications revolution has reduced distance. Nuclear missiles reduce distance. Why exactly. Does That's exactly the point. Matter. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly the point that, that we came to the end of history where we wouldn't have to really struggle against any great uh, ideology out in the world and therefore have to think about where that ideology was being played out and what you're talking about, the what some call the revolution in military affairs, so that, yeah, you could project power anywhere that you wanted to at any point in time. You didn't have to actually think about geography. So once the Cold War ended, this concept of, of um, geographic spaces that we needed to be aware of, whether we were going to operate there or make sure that they were friendly or ensure that our resources could get through, we, we thought that we didn't have to worry about that. And so you're right, in the space of about a generation, it all attenuated. Um, but of course, the end of history thesis was false. The revolution in military affairs only takes you so far. We saw that geography played a major role in the battles of uh, the 19, uh, the, well, part of the 1990s, if you want to talk about what was happening in the Balkans and, and why we were so restricted in being able to act there, uh, in what Russia was doing uh, when it sought to take over uh, Crimea and then influence eastern Ukraine, obviously in the Middle East after 9-11, and then perhaps most challengingly to us, uh, China, as it as it became a, a regional and then actually a global power. And all of a sudden we realized, no, you know, you actually have to be able to work in different geographic spaces. And all we've been talking about, for example, in Asia in the past 10 years is, gosh, do we have enough forces in, in the region? Or what happens if the Chinese can target our bases or target our ships? It's all about geography. And so you have to think from the beginning, not simply that you're going to be able to be anywhere you want, or that any region will be organized the way that you expect, but rather that geography continues to play an irreducible role. And so with Asia in particular, it, it's hard for us because we're not as familiar with the geography. It's easier to think of Europe and you just draw a line down the middle, for example, you had you know, the, the Cold War and Iron Curtain. Well, how do you deal with a region like Asia where there's islands and peninsulas and continents and archipelagos and inner seas and the Pacific Ocean? Anyway, it's very, it's very confusing. And, and I think that part of our, um, the part of the, 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 the concern that we've had in terms of responding to China is because we didn't think about it geographically. Start with that as the precept of, okay, where are we? Where are they? What are the areas that we need to be in and why? And then build your... Yeah, let me pause you there, Misha, um, just a real quick question. Yeah. What did McKinder and Spikeman say about China and Asia? And then how, have you, how do you view it? Do you view it exactly the same or you modify or uh, or reject parts of the way they think of Asia? Well, Mackinder was famous for starting the, the school of geopolitical thinking with his famous Heartland thesis, which was actually only a, a relatively small article back in 1903. And essentially, he said the Heartland is that great Eurasian steppe, basically Russia that's, you know, west of the or east of the Urals, uh, stretching down into Mongolia and, and probably um, parts of China as well. And so whoever controlled the heartland, he said, controlled the, the destiny of the world. And in order to control the heartland, you had to control the areas surrounding it, which got you closer to the coasts. Um, and this is where he said that the great uh, the, you know, the great geopolitical games would be played. Um, obviously, it, it didn't turn out that way because no one really cared yeah, so much about the heartland. <laughs> he, yeah. he was wrong, but, then, but yeah. then he he was pointing us in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And Nicholas John Spikeman, who was a Yale geographer slash political scientist uh, in the 1930s and 40s, came along 
and refined it in a way that I think is very perceptive. And he said, actually, the the great battle space for global control is not the heartland, but it is the rim lands, the, the lands that are along the rim of the great Eurasian landmass. And connected to them, most of them are, of course, littoral, meaning they're on the seas. It is what he called the inner ocean. So you have, you had two schools. You had the, the Mackinder Heartland School, and then, of course, you had Alfred Thayer Mahan and his influence of sea power upon history, which said whoever controls the high seas you know, can control essentially the world. And again, we realize that that's not exactly the case because the, the high seas are gigantic and vast. Where you do have to control the seas is the inner seas. So you think of the Mediterranean, you think of the North Sea, you think of the English Channel. If you go out to Asia, you think of the, um, the East China Sea or the South China Sea. All of those are the, the, the crucial waters that abut what Spikeman called the Rimlands. Why is that mm. most important? Well, if you look at the heart. Yeah, I was going to say, like, so if you're talking to a, a millennial, which we have to do from time to time, unfortunately, <laughs> actually, I, I'm paid to talk to them all the time. Right. You have one at home who's stuck at home now. But what, God, that, would be, right. that would be a nightmare being trapped in a, in a house with a millennial, I'd say. But, <laughs> <laughs> you can't get away from it. But if, so a millennial would say, like, why do we care about the oceans at all? That's what I fly over when I get to Korea and Japan, or if I want to get to Europe, the oceans, who cares anymore? So what, you know, what is your reply to the, exactly. the youth of the world? Well, well this, this particular reply uh, to the youth of the world would be right, is, is that Spikeman points out, why do we, if, if you're standing in the heartland, what do you see? nothing but step and maybe some grain. If you stand on the coast of China, what do you see? Well, you see the most productive regions on earth, right? You see where the factories are, the biggest cities, where the people are, where all the ports are, where the ships are. So, and the same thing if you're looking at the Mediterranean, same thing if you're looking at, for example, the um, the North Sea or the Baltic Sea and the like. Um, this is where the people, the cities, the factories are. And so that's why they had to be controlled. And obviously, if you looked at then how world wars were played out in the in the era of of uh, geopolitics, it, it pretty much conforms, I think, to what Spikeman was saying. Right, Japan really didn't try to to penetrate all the way into inland or interior China or or Russia. It it wanted to capture the Rimland area. Right, it, it captured Port Arthur in 1904, uh, or it captured the China coast in in the 1930s. Right, it captured Shanghai. Obviously, it had to get to Beijing because that's where the capital was. But it it, it didn't want to go much beyond that. And in fact, it got caught into a quagmire. When you look at what Hitler was doing as well, right? He wanted to control France. He wanted to control the Low Countries. He was, uh, you know, forced either by his own madness or by um, by the the existential fact of Russia to turn eastwards and attack Russia. And that's where his army was destroyed. But if he had been able to come to a modus vivendi that lasted with Stalin, uh, then he could have controlled all of Western Europe and probably most of. Central Europe, um, all of Central Europe. So the lawyer in me would say, that, so what we would say is it's both, a, your theory is both descriptive and normative. It's uh, descriptive in the sense that it just says, if you look at the world, just factually, the most productive uh, countries, cities, people are located along the coasts and historically have been. Uh, it doesn't ask why, it just says that's the way it is. And then the normative part, I'd say, is that, uh, and therefore, if you are a 
country with a, you know, you want to be a great power, you want to control as much of that as possible. Um, especially the parts that are along, you know, adjacent to you or in your country or adjacent to your country, that is a desirable goal of foreign policy. Uh, so that, is that sort of where you come from too then? Is that well, your... Right, for, the, for this chapter, which was an introductory chapter to try to reintroduce the concept of geopolitics. And I think that if you look at what China has been doing, what the strategy of uh, the CCP in Beijing is, it is precisely to control the inner seas, right? They didn't say anything about, you know, we're going to contest the high... Pacific, or we're going to go into the the Eurasian steppe. What they what they said was the East China Sea and the South China Sea are ours, because they knew that's where you have access to the rest of the world, and that's where your raw materials come into, and that's where your finished goods go out of. It's where your most powerful, um, you know, Japan being on one edge, one end of the rim, right? As just like England is the 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 edge of the European rim, and then there's a sea between it and the continent. Um, it wanted to control that that space. If you look at one belt, one road, it's also a geopolitical, um, it's a geopolitical strategy, and in fact. There, there's a term, it's a clunky term, but I think it's an important term called geostrategy. So in a way, what you're talking about as descriptive is geopolitics. It's how geography affects foreign policy and the like. The normative part is actually your geostrategy. You have to have a strategy in order to operate within those geographic realms. That's what China has, right? They, they understood that geopolitics meant that in order to be dominant, you had to dominate the South China Sea, maybe the East China Sea. Um, and so you know, strategy is to get you to be able to do that. Let me ask you about this. So is it your view, therefore, that um, it doesn't matter? And this was, you know, you, as you remember, this is an argument that people had about uh, Germany, too, in World War One and World War Two. Does it matter, then, that it's the CCP in charge of China? Or is it the case that just any kind, you know, China, no matter who was in charge, would want to extend its control because that's just what great powers do. And so this is just the inevitable strategic incentives on China. That's a really interesting question. And um, uh, I think the answer is, from the geopolitical perspective, yes, that what you described as as the descriptive part is means that any nation that is located in those regions, right? If you're all the way interior, if you're Uzbekistan, you're obviously not thinking about controlling the inner seas, right? But yes, any nation, and particularly great nations, will be will be um, impelled to extend their control. Um, and so, you know, the good example would be Imperial Germany and Nazi Germany, right? They both attempted the same geo geostrategic uh, approaches towards Europe because they, they knew that those were areas they had to control, essentially reducing France, controlling the coastline, trying to isolate Britain. So from one perspective, you're right. I mean, China, as China, would simply have to be concerned uh, as it was uh, when before uh, the Communist Party, when Japan was attempting to control uh, the, the inner seas, or what was what Spikeman also called them the marginal seas, because they're on the margins, not that they're unimportant, but marginal as in on the margins. Um, but you have a particular issue with, with the CCP because of its ideology, because of its unwillingness to uh, basically be able to come to any type of accommodation uh, with with. Uh, the, the capitalist world and the liberal world, as we see in in uh, the policies that they've adopted, one belt one road is another perfect example 
of a geo strategy uh, that actually conforms a little bit more to Mackinder, which is that you you want to be able to control all the way through that Eurasian landmass and tie it together. Now there's a maritime element of that, what's sometimes called the maritime Silk Road, and the one belt one road on land is sometimes called the new Silk Road. Uh, but but they're trying to do the same thing, and so the challenge for us to bring it back to this broader geopolitical question is that they are trying to change the geopolitical environment. They're trying to gain access to uh, to resources. They're trying to control the lines of communication, whether they're on land or sea. Uh, and they're doing it by actually combining, in a sense, what Mackinder talked about with what Spikeman talked about. Our problem was is that we really didn't take it that seriously. We didn't say, you know, this is a geopolitical challenge. Instead, we said, well, we've got bases here and, you know, we want to integrate China into the global commons and the global community and so on and so forth. And we should have been thinking about it as a geopolitical challenge. And now we are. And so I think I think that's part of the point of the book was to try to bring back at least some of those ideas. So let me ask you, so the, if I were a critic, uh, you know, sir, maybe, a, I don't know what you're called, neoliberal, not neoliberal, new, new institutionalists, that's what they call them in the legal academy. They would say, "Our, our, yeah, they just they're people who love international law and international organizations and think, uh, they think, you know, it's a, it's very uh, Kantian. Peace is the natural state of international relations, and war is this, uh, you know, unfortunate interruption um, that's unnatural." Uh, but they would say, "Look, well, maybe you, uh, Misha Austin, you warmonger, you, <laughs> you're overinterpreting." everything China's doing. You know, you could say maybe this is the, the Obama-Biden approach to how to deal with China, or the Clinton approach, or maybe even the George W. Bush approach. Uh, you know, let them grow. Don't uh, really uh, try to stop their growth. It's like growing pains. They're, uh, they're still somewhat immature in how they conduct foreign policy. Uh, they really do want to focus on internal economic growth. The reason they're trying to you know, build out these networks is because they need to keep growing their economy to satisfy uh, domestic political concerns. And uh, we don't want to be like in World War One, where we misinterpret everything they do, uh, and we thereby each of us escalate our responses and head into war uh, without intention. Uh, and so maybe there's a peaceful explanation for everything China's doing. Uh, every China did follow kind of our hopes for quite some time, for 20, 30 years, and there was never a military confrontation. And they did uh, integrate into the world economy. Is there any concern or worry that, you know, the, this way of looking at the world will cause us to interpret everything China does now in this kind of hostile, escalatory Way. Well, I think that the um, the way to approach it is to look at what they've done as they have gained power, meaning it's very different to say China wasn't really a threat and didn't try to, to threaten our interests in 1980. But in 1980, its GDP was, you know, per capita was like $200 per person, or actually 1980, I think it was, it was actually just barely reaching 1,000 per person. Um, and it didn't. It didn't have anything more than a coastal navy. It didn't have anything more than a uh, 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 an air force that that couldn't fly out of the sight of land. But as it built all of those capabilities up and and had a navy that could basically be a, what we call blue water navy, could go into the, the high oceans, um, and an air force that could operate 
you know, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of miles from, uh, from the land, then what did it start doing, right? It, it became less willing to cooperate with its neighbors. It became far more assertive of its territorial claims. It actually reclaimed islands in the South China Sea, built them from the seabed, and then militarized them. So it it acted geographically to say, I think we want this sea. And of course, it made legal claims with that as well, using what's sometimes known as lawfare, right? The law of the sea convention in order to press its claims uh, against others. Um, and then we saw it act, and, and if you want to think about geopolitics, cyber as as a new fourth dimension in, in, in geopolitics, it tried to uh, dominate the cyber realm, right, through cyber attacks, and as well as, of course, becoming the dominant provider of, of, of broadband and, and other cyber services. And so the question, I think, is not how did China act in 1980 or 1990, but how did it act in 2010 and 2020? Uh, and it clearly became aggressive, uh, certainly had been assertive for a while, and then in, in many cases had become aggressive as well. Um, and so I don't think it's over-interpretation. In fact, the, the problem is we didn't interpret China correctly. And when we say China, let's be clear, we're talking about the Communist Party, and we're talking about Beijing, and I think that needs to be made very clear. Uh, we didn't interpret the Communist Party correctly. We, we thought that it would moderate and morph in some way to maybe some sort of weird social democratic European-style party, in the, and, and the party, the Communist Party of China, was never going to do that. So our interpretation was actually, it, we didn't do due diligence, which was to say, okay, we have a set of policies to integrate it into the world, and it is integrated economically and politically, but now how is China living up to its agreements? How is it acting? Is it trying to obtain a exclusive in, uh, exclusive of interest? Is it abusing its access into our free societies? And the answer to all of that was yes. So it's a, <clears throat> your book is, uh, I think, has some great chapters, not just on China, which of course is the great focus of discussion these days, but you remind us that uh, we have to pay attention to the other great players in the area. And of course, our great, uh, one of our great allies in uh, containing China is Japan. And you have two chapters in your book about Japan. Uh, one is uh, a chapter that I think uh, tries to explain from inside Japan how they think about foreign policy and how they, they view uh, internationalism. And then you have another chapter, which is a wonderful chapter, about uh, the, the relationship, competition, whatever you want to call it, between China and Japan on, you know, put aside you know, American concerns. So uh, first, could you explain, uh, you know, you just went through how, you know, the Mackinder, Spikeman, American strategists uh, think, uh, or European strategists to think about great power competition and geography. Does Japan think about it the same way or do they have a uniquely Japanese way? Everything they do seems uniquely Japanese. Is there a uniquely Japanese way of thinking about uh, foreign policy and Japan's role in Asia? Well, I, I think probably every nation has, you know, to, to echo Barack Obama, every nation has, you know, some uniqueness in terms of how it views foreign policy, again, based on its geography. An island nation is always worried about access to raw materials, especially if you don't have raw materials like Japan doesn't, versus a continental nation, which may be worried more about neighbors because it's surrounded uh, on land contiguously by neighbors. So from one perspective, Japan definitely has a, a unique view of being an island and a very large archipelago that stretches, you know, all the way, almost, you know, all the way up to 
subarctic levels down to tropical uh, tropical uh, latitudes. So it, it has to worry about uh, different types of, of oceanic environments and, and therefore uh, um, regional environments where there's a lot of small islands or continental uh, continental partners. And so Japan has always faced both Russia, certainly since the, the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 1800s, has faced Russia as a continental challenge and then always China. Um, even though the, by the way, the, 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 to get from the continent to Japan, even, even from Korea across the Korea Strait is about 120 miles of very, very rough ocean versus the English channels, nothing, right? You can actually swim it. You can't swim really from, uh, from, you, you know, the continent, uh, and even the peninsula, you certainly can't swim from the continent, but you can't even swim from the Korean peninsula to Japan. So there's been a level of isolation. Um, but Japan has always felt integrated into this realm because of, of passage across the seas. So it's actually a good question, first of all, in the geopolitics, and I've, I've you know, I'm, I'm trying to look now at both Chinese and Japanese geopolitical writing. Um, but there were Japanese thinkers, for example, back in the 1800s, who argued that Japan had to move its capital over to Sakhalin Island, uh, which is in <laughs> really yeah, in order to because way that would, up north. <laughs> well, that would be the because because Russia wow. to them was the great threat, so that would be the first yeah. step conquering Siberia. Um, and then, of course, there was the argument in World War II that you had to, you know, essentially take over as much as you could of the, 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 the rimlands on the continent of China, because otherwise you'd be threatened. And Korea has always been the bugbear for the Japanese. It's been called the dagger pointed at the soft underbelly of Japan. So the thinking is absolutely conditioned for Japan as it is for Korea. Uh, and China by geography. China worried that it doesn't have many natural borders to the west or to the north, that it's easy to be invaded. Uh, Korea, that it's a peninsula surrounded by giant nations, China, Japan, and Russia. And Japan, that it's an island nation that can be cut off by these other by these other countries. So the Japanese have always sought both a level of, of um, uh, removal, if I can put it that way, from the continent and yet access to it. And the chapter uh, that I write in there about Japan called The Eightfold Fence, which comes from an ancient Japanese poem, is about how Japan's encounter with modernity, in fact, is very much um, uh, shaped by this desire to keep barriers and boundaries between itself and the rest of the world, even as it attempts to act in that world, uh, to maintain tradition, but to maintain physical safety and geographic safety. Uh, and so Japan plays a role um, that is that is somewhat unique. It's 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 it is, I would say, analogous to Britain. Yeah, it's very similar in position to Britain and France and Germany, you would you would think. And the things you mentioned are, you know, sort of echo in British thinking about foreign policies well. And right now we just saw Britain Brexit. They decided they got too integrated with the continent and they want to be uh, you know, as you say, put a little bit of remove between themselves and the large powers. Exactly right. Uh, in Japan, uh, you know, first of all, the great model for Japan's modernization wasn't the United States, it was Britain, both because of the, the caste systems, the social caste systems that they had, the monarchy, the navy, and of course, they were both islands dealing with major continental powers. Uh, so Japan has always, I think, thought itself, uh, you know, 
whether lucky or just smart, that it didn't really have to deal with an EU type of environment. You know, there's no EU in Asia. And it has seen what that can become and how Britain is extricating itself from it. And so this desire to maintain a distance, not from, not just physically from the continent, but but ideationally, oh, I hate that term, but, you know, in, in the way it thinks about itself as a nation. Politically, culturally, yeah. Exactly right. And so how do you explain a Japan that has kept, you know, whether it's immigration barriers or uh, has a very different type of, of, um, uh, of economic system? The, the, simple, the simple historical point in the chapter was that if we go out 100 years or so, 150 years, whatever it is, and look back at Japan after the popping of the bubble in 1989, when we all lost interest in Japan and thought, well, See, it's not going to take over the world's economy, and so it's not important. And you know what? It isn't really as modernized as us because we have open borders and so on and so forth. The question was simply in another 100, 200 years, will we look back on Japan and say, you know what? It may have made better choices than we gave it credit for and maybe absolute better choices than the West. Its, its society is much more uh, stable and homogenous. Um, it, it, it maintains its world leading levels of education, health, uh, and the like, low crime, right? It has enormous problems. It, it, has, it has demographic problems, of course. It has um, uh, gender issues. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of different problems. Actually, it has a poverty issue. But at the same time, it, it, it's, it's uh, you know, the Gini coefficient of inequality is much lower in Japan than it is in the United States or the West. It has nothing like our crime rates. It doesn't have the social divisions. Um, it has willingly surrendered certain aspects of freewheeling capitalism to maintain economic stability. So my question was simply, are we going to look back and say, oh, maybe Japan made choices that weren't so bad in retrospect. They had the uh, benefit of uh, also falling on the Western side of the Iron Curtain, as it were. Uh, you know, a lot of things you say about Japan are also true of Western Europe. And uh, you could say both Japan and Western Europe had the benefit of being protected by the United States for 50 years without having to pay very much for defense. Um, but that actually leads us into your second your other chapter about Japan, because now that's not so true anymore. You know, Japan doesn't have to, can't just tether itself to American security policy and serve as a base for the American Navy and Air Force that was keeping China at bay. And now they have to think again about uh, an independent foreign policy and how to deal with China. So what, in, your, in this other chapter, what, what do you think is, right, you're, first, I think it's wonderful that you uh, focus on, you know, that the Pacific issues are not just the United States versus China, that uh, there's a long history of different rivalries. These countries have all been here thousands of years before the United States even showed up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, it's it reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, I think there was, it's an apocryphal story, I think, that, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, after the Cold War, starting to figure out what to do with Russia, you know, I think the British said something like, now it's your problem. <laughs> you know, we've been doing this for 200 years, dealing, trying to figure out what to do about Russia. Um, and you get that kind of sense from your work here. It's, you know, there's this longer history of rivalries uh, that have to be dealt with. So what, so explain to listeners your view about this China-Japan relationship. And it seems to me, I mean, just, a, you know, not a scholar of China-Japan, that as the United States, you know, recedes in power, maybe we're not receding, but China's rising, it's going to cause more independent 
foreign policies again to come to the fore but by each of these asian nations which for so long have well not so long about 50 years have lived under the american security umbrella out there yeah this this uh chapter i called the other great game you know which is a nod to the british russian great game in central asia but this is the great game between china and japan and you're right this relationship goes back well it, it goes back you know, 1,700 years. Um, we don't know exactly, even even earlier, quite frankly, almost 2,000 years. 1,700 years? They can't they just get a divorce? That's like uh, the longest uh, unhappy marriage in history. Right. <laughs> well, you, you, that's the point of geography. It's as if it's as if they couldn't unlock the doors to get out of the house, right? They can't yeah. leave. That's, that's exactly the point about the geography is they can't leave, right? right? So, yeah. um, and, and certainly Japan can't, can't up and move. So, um, it is a relationship that has gone back for you know well over a thousand years, and in terms of of intense contacts, you know, really fifteen hundred for regular contacts, and a lot of Japanese civilization was based off of initial Chinese models melded with indigenous Japanese models like the emperor. The Japanese emperor is a very different type of emperor from uh, from the Chinese emperors that, that uh, held with different dynasties. Um, it, but for the Japanese and the Chinese, it was always the case of one was powerful and one was weaker. Uh, now you have the case where both are powerful and they've both been powerful, you know, for Japan and in, in Japan's sense it's been powerful really for uh over a little over a century since it started modernizing and, and defeated china and russia in the early wars in the you know 1894 and 1904 and then for china of course it's become so powerful um regained a position of power just in the past you know 10 15 20 years so the two of them don't really know it's like like you said it's like that couple being locked in a house they don't know how to deal with each other and there's both admiration and contempt i mean if you talk to chinese they admire enormously what japan's done and they know how well japan has done if you look at talk to the japanese you know they they are astounded at what china has accomplished and fear it and what they've accomplished in just 20 years so there's there's contempt and there's a long history obviously of japanese invasion uh during the 20th century of china uh, of china being an overbearing hegemon in many ways uh in in the past um but it's a question of how do they deal with each other going forward and that's really what the chapter is about that they're both using diplomatic tools they're both using uh, economic tools trade and the like and by the way we always talk about one belt one road well japan has a similar they just don't call it the belt and road the one belt one road and it's actually in many ways more successful than china's it's given more money it's been more transparent it has more uh more support than than china's because of the problems with how beijing is uh, doing its one belt one road and even militarily both of them japan neither of them interestingly by the way have allies uh, japan has the united states but it doesn't have other allies in asia it has close relations with india close relations with australia but no real allies and as for china maybe north korea is an ally but you can have them right there's no real ally so the two of them are trying to influence these countries throughout asia also can i ask you about this before you because that's a really interesting observation why is it that uh, neither Japan or China really have allies in this region where both have been, you know, going nation states, going states, I mean, not nations, but going nations, at least for a thousand years. Um, and all the countries in that region all want to be allies with the United States and are allies with the United States, which is a country that wasn't even around in the Pacific until the late 19th century. 
why why do china is it because just the other countries have suffered militarism at the hands of both countries china and japan for so many decades or centuries they don't trust any of them anymore or what is the What's the reason for that? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And by the way, I'd throw India in. So the three great nations of, of the Indo-Pacific of Asia, India, China, and Japan, none of them have real allies. Um, you know, again, China has a relationship with, with Pakistan. Uh, India has, you know, relationships with Japan. Um, but none of them have allies. And in part, it's because of their imperial pasts. Now, the Indian and Chinese imperial pasts go back, you know, thousands of years. And... So the nations, the always smaller nations on their periphery, are always concerned about them. Uh, Japan's imperial history is much more recent, of course. It only goes back to uh, the 1870s, basically, uh, but but really kicks in in you know the the early 20th century. But still, the the countries of the region don't um, trust uh, India, Japan, and China because of this, and also because India, China, and Japan are by far the strongest nations in the region, um, whether it's population or geographic size or economic power. And so naturally, every other nation is going to be wary of them because they know what this past is. So it's it's a very interesting thing that the, the three most powerful nations and in some ways the oldest civilizations in the Indo-Pacific don't have allies. And so that's the competition um, between, in this case, China and Japan. Um, and of course, India, by the way, John, India and China, where you just had 20 Indian soldiers killed in a medieval bats and stones and and uh and 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 rods and whatever they were using beating each other uh in the himalayas yeah you wonder why didn't they just use guns but <laughs> uh they, they well they, yeah, they they're smart they, they, not to, yeah. they, they demilitarized the guns out of that zone precisely because things like this may have happened so then how do you just to, to finish up that chapter on china japan how do how do you see that resolve that relationship resolving or at least, how does it continue for the next few 10, 20 years? India and Japan, uh, China and Japan, right? Yes, yes, um, China and Japan. Yeah, well, it's it's a great question, um, and and that's actually what the two are trying to figure out. And you've had fits and starts of, of can they cooperate? And so, for example, uh, Beijing set up something called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, about half a decade ago to counter the Asian Development Bank, which was set up by uh, the U.S. and Japan, and which is run by a Japanese. And initially, the two saw themselves as competing, and then they said, well, maybe we can you know jointly underwrite things. So they they have they've they've done these things um you know to talk about uh how can we um potentially cooperate but the truth is they're locked in an extremely competitive um an extremely competitive relationship uh and one that is only worsening because of the assertion uh assertive attitude and aggressive attitude by uh beijing by the party and the and the flashpoint is the senkaku islands uh that is uh, administered by Japan and claimed by by Beijing. Um, so this is, it's not a relationship given the trajectory that Xi Jinping has brought China to, uh, in which, by the way, it has it has strained relations with almost all of its neighbors, obviously with India, with Japan, uh, with uh, with Taiwan, of course, which it claims as its own. Uh, there seems to be a little bit of a bromance going between Putin and Xi, but the, the Russians know that they're on the, the weak end of this, and so they don't trust the Chinese either. So Japan benefits from a region that doesn't trust 
China increasingly. Uh, and Abe, and here I'll close out on this, is just uh, Shinzo Abe, who's been prime minister uh, since 2012, as long as Xi Jinping has controlled China, um, basically is posing Japan as the un-China. You know, we're the we're the partner you can trust. We're not going to try to intimidate you geographically. We're not going to, going to do what China is doing to uh, smaller countries with debt trap diplomacy. We're not going to threaten you with our military as it does to the Philippines or Vietnam or Malaysia and the like um, over disputed territory. In fact, we're going to work carefully with you. The only nation that doesn't go for, of course, unfortunately, is South Korea, but that's a different story. Great. So let's uh, wrap up. Uh, God, our times together when we do these podcasts, Misha, they seem way too short. I don't know if that's true for the listeners, but it's, no, definitely sure for... it's like way too long for them. <laughs> but let's let's uh, finish. Which I thought the you know the most provocative part of your book, the fun part of the book is, uh, and as a historian, you must have really enjoyed this. Was pretending you're looking back from the future, and you uh, sort of propose, what if there's a uh, military escalation, even uh, conflict between uh, the U.S. and China uh, in the future under uh, President Biden, I believe you say. No, Gavin Newsom. <laughs> oh, that's right, President <laughs> Newsom. <laughs> well, if he's in charge, we'll still be under lockdown but, uh, for another six years or whatever. But yeah, so uh, you know, President Newsom, and there's a a military confrontation with China. So what, what tell everybody what's going to happen? Uh, how much fun did you have writing this chapter? Um, and then uh, what does it teach us about the insights of the book? Because you made it the concluding chapter, wraps right. everything it, up. It's called the, the 2025 U.S.-China Littoral War. Um, and so it takes place five years in the future. And I'll tell you, John, initially I had a ton of fun writing it as a historian looking back. And then the more research I did and the more I talked. No, no, archive, no archives to review, no people to Well, interview. that was easy, but I, I talked to a lot of military people. And the more I learned and the more I, I brought in what I had known, actually the less fun it became because it really started concerning me. The, the, the scenario is built off of things that have already happened. So, so basically, we get into a war with China because we have a collision of airplanes and a collision of ships in the South China Sea. Uh, and that's already happened. We already had a collision of airplanes back in 2001, and China has collided ships with a lot of its neighbors. And we're out there trying to help the Philippines over Scarborough Shoal, which the Chinese have taken over, and where we sail our ships regularly now. So everything that I wrote, all of the scenarios were basically based off of things that either have happened or were um, were real life capabilities or re relationships or the like, and essentially the difference I think with this chapter is if you've read other treatments of of war between the U.S. and China, and I won't name them because I don't want to give them plugs, but if you've read other ones, um, they're always about China deciding to go to war with the U.S. This is not that. This is what happens if an accident happens because we've already had the accidents. What happens if neither side is really ready for a war? What if neither side wants a war, but they're thrust into it? And so it plays out very differently. What I what I find and what I when I was talking to lots of people is that actually – it, both sides would be much more risk averse while at the same time trying to ensure that they didn't lose. And so the scenario plays out not with China suddenly shutting down the entire uh, U.S. electrical grid or blocking all of our computers through cyber attacks or shooting down our satellites. In fact, Beijing is very worried that if it escalates, the U.S. is going to escalate and we actually have a lot more power than them. Similarly, the U.S. is very concerned that if we actually 
do the things that we need to do to protect our forces, which, for example, would mean attacking land-based missiles on China, that would be an escalation. And both of them are concerned that you could escalate to nuclear war. So they they jockey and they they fight very aggressively in the areas that already have had the conflict, but they're also very worried about escalating it either horizontally, meaning to new areas, let's say Hawaii or mainland China, or vertically, meaning you go from fighter jets to nuclear missiles. Uh, and, and that to me seemed to be much more realistic. And ultimately, um, the two uh, decide they have to they have to cap this before it gets out of hand, but they do so in a way, and I don't want to give away too much because I'd, I'd love people to actually go and read it, but they do so in a way which fundamentally no, changes. No, they don't have to now that we've had this podcast. Why buy the book? <laughs> oh, no, no. Well, now, okay, we're going to erase kidding. the whole podcast. I'm kidding. No, the, the book is we'll much richer say, than book. this podcast. Um, <laughs> but they decide to end it by, by um, before it gets out of hand, but in a way that fundamentally changes the geopolitical environment, and the United States winds up uh, in a in a very disadvantageous position, and then what China feels that it has gained through the war actually also turns out to be more problematic. And I detail that there are three geopolitical blocks that emerge. And and again, I wrote it not as a policy person. A policy person would write it and say China's going to jam this and China's going to attack that because they're dealing with. They're thinking about capabilities. I wrote it as a historian based on everything I had read for a very long time about all of this. And, and I read it uh, in a way that, that leads to what history always leads to, which is something that's messy and uncertain and ultimately unfinished because history is never finished. And so the, 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 the history leaves people uh, 20 years after the war saying, well, how stable is this and where does it go from here? But it shows what happens when ill will and miscalculation essentially spiral out of control and lead to a conflict and then how the nations involved which both want to win but in some ways are more worried about losing how they then act that's uh i think a beautiful way actually to end the podcast and to finish with a pitch for the book which is uh all the one the reasons we love reading history and uh, you brought a lot of, I think, really interesting perspectives, lots of different angles from grand strategy to uh, even the history of, of strategic thought to uh, looking at the inside of countries. What are the motivations of a China, Japan? Uh, there's a chapter we didn't get to about cultural issues in India and women. It's a really great book. I hope people uh, will go out and read it. And so... Uh, Misha, thank you for giving. This has been the easiest episode of the podcast ever because uh, we got to talk about your book. So at least we knew we had a prepared guest who knew what they were talking about and was familiar with the show and its format. Well, most and of so our I hope everybody uh, the hosts are unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's true once again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, with that, uh, everybody, thank you for joining us. And thank you, Misha. And on behalf of me and Misha, to everybody, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hoover Institution's podcast, The Pacific Century. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, 
And to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. 